Welcome everyone. I'm Andrew Duckworth and I'd like to thank you for joining us for the fifth episode from our second podcast series on the COVID-19 pandemic entitled COVID-19, the new normal and how to get there. At the time of recording this on Tuesday the 19th of May, data for the UK suggests that we are approaching a quarter of a million confirmed cases of COVID-19, with sadly almost 35,000 deaths. As some nations around the world start to try and move out of lockdown and determine the best way forward, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to weigh heavily over our healthcare systems across the world. And we've heard in recent weeks from several well-respected institutions and think tanks that restoring NHS services was going to take many months and it would be some time before the NHS was back fully. In light of this, through this second series of podcasts, we're reflecting on what has happened so far as a consequence of the pandemic for us in our specialty, as well as on our healthcare system as a whole. We've already heard from a range of colleagues and specialties, as we will today, on how we move forward as we start to consider increasing our orthopaedic services around the country. There are several questions and unknowns regarding hospital capacities, staffing and PPE supplies, patient safety, as well as patient consent in the light of COVID-19. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Jeff Bellingham, who is the Medical Director for Surgery and Cancer at University College Hospital London, whom I know will be able to give us an exceptional overview and perspective into the effects of the pandemic so far from one of our frontline specialties, but also discuss the recent release guidelines and how we may restart both urgent and planned care in the NHS. Many thanks for joining us today, Jeff. We really appreciate your time to join us today. Thanks very much. I look forward to uh, an interesting conversation. So, Jeff, if we could just start off, we know we're over two months now since our first COVID-19 death in the UK, and a lot always continues to develop and, and change uh, over the past few months throughout the UK and the world. Uh, and as we have for all our guests so far in this series, I wanted to start off by asking you what your experience of the pandemic over the past few months has been, and if you give our listeners a perspective from your specialty, who have very much been and continue to be on the front line during this pandemic. Yeah, sure. So clearly, my background is as a critical care doc, and critical care has been absolutely front and centre of dealing with COVID pandemic. And I think people who've been working in critical care have been uh, close to being overwhelmed. It's been mm. a massively difficult time for them, huge number of patients, and pushed to every limit in terms of insufficient staff, insufficient kit, and too many patients coming through with utterly amazing stories of, of uh, everyone um, going more than the extra mile. Mm. And that's not just the critical care docs and the critical care nurses, but all the support teams coming in and all the other uh, clinicians, docs and nurses coming in. Mm. So it's been an amazing time of watching people just getting on doing what's right. Yeah. Um, in in circumstances which are very, you know, uh, we're a very first world country. I was born and brought up in Zimbabwe, and I'm not saying we're at third world levels, but you really were not working in the way we were used to working. And yeah. people were exceptionally um, uh, strong in the way they all pulled together. Um, and I do emphasize it's broader than just the critical care community. My personal journey was a unique one in that I elected to partake of the pleasures of your field of orthopedics uh, and had my knee replaced about five weeks before this uh, pandemic. So I actually uh, have to confess that um, I was at home uh, recovering from an elective knee surgery but I'm watching my colleagues uh, putting both shoulders to the wheel and yeah. feeling somewhat guilty. But I came back very quickly as medical director uh, and 
understood and was on daily con- comms with, with them all and took my hat off to what, what they did. Uh, but I think we're now coming to a slightly different phase. Some people are able to come up and catch their breath. Uh, the total number of COVID patients has been going down steadily. We're out of uh, the recovery areas and the operating theatres. We're back in the basic footprint of critical care. Mm. And we're starting to re-look at what that looks like. And that's quite a tough time in its own right. Absolutely. And you're saying, Jeff, there, so in, in London, obviously, it's very much been at the epicentre of it for the UK. Things have not returned to normal, but there is a, 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 a slow return to more manageable numbers, you would say. Yes, um, just about everywhere stopped all elective work and went into the surge with critical care empty or nearly empty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we filled those, all the critical care beds, all the associated HDU beds, and then typically would go into the recovery areas and into operating theatres that we had pre stripped and kitted to try and be as close to an ICU as we could get. Yeah. We reached the point uh, that I think we had uh, 111 from our normal sort of 35 in, in uh, uh, UCH, that sort of scale of, of change. Um, and then we've come back down. So we now don't have any uh, patients in our recovery areas, don't have any patients in the operating theatres. Mm. And we've cleaned those now. We've put the doors back on. We've now got uh, the kit ready for operating to start. We're probably aiming to start uh, operating uh, in our elective theatre this month, if we can, with some key carefully selected uh, patients that we should be be working on. But what we've also been doing, whilst all of that surge has been going on, is doing operations. So we had a look in East London, UCLH, took the lead, worked with the independent sector and NHS on that, and we set up uh, one of our clean hospital sites at Westman Street and two independent uh, sector hospitals at Princess Grace and Wellington and set up a cancer hub. Right. And that is where we did major cancer surgery for UCH, Royal Free, North Mid, Whittington, uh, also BHRUT, Barts and the Homerton. So all of those places were able to come and operate on their, the complex cancer that needed to be done, tier one and tier two cancer mm. operations. Yeah. And that was done in a very planned way. We went through the MDTs, we had a clinical prioritization group that made sure that the right patients who needed surgery were brought in, in as safe a way as we could do. So patients were checked, isolated for two weeks, screened, if they're still negative then brought in uh, operation done with full PPE for all the staff, followed up in the wards with uh, you know proper gloves and masks and everything, discharged home. And in that time, we've now in seven weeks done hundreds and hundreds of cancer operations wow. and got a good experience that we can do this, it's safe. And if we look at those, we've done life-saving cancer operations, tier one, tier two operations need to be done. We've done those and saved lives already. So I'm very much in a place that we should be trying to proceed with the other operations that need to be done, but you've got to do it, bringing the patients up safely, 
and you've got to do it protecting your staff yeah. with PPE in a planned process that we know what we're doing. That's that's really interesting, Jeff. I think just that experience that you're obviously gaining with these these, these sort of like tier one, tier two patients, like you just say, and that sort of moves on to the you know there's been lots of guidelines. We've you know we we're just discussing how much guidance there is out there and how the, the NHS can potentially move forward. And there's the recently issued guidance from your specialties, the AOA, the Royal College of Anesthetists and the Intensive Care Society and the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, which we've already discussed in our third podcast with the president of the AOA, Dr. Kathleen Ferguson. But what is your take on all these guidelines and, and how do we, as you know, all regions are different, how do you feel we best interpret them uh, moving forward? So I think you've got to look at what the guidance is trying to do, really be focusing on achieving a few key things. One, it should be there such that you're, you're protecting your staff. So we need to make sure that our staff are not exposed to uh, undue risk. Two, it needs to be there such that the patient is not exposed to undue risk. And if you can make sure your staff are protected and your patients are protected, we should then be trying to get patients through procedures as long as we've ratified and checked that they're the right things to be doing. So you don't want to be bringing someone up for a procedure they didn't really want and it wasn't really necessary uh, and they could have waited just because they're on a list. But there's a lot of people, not just cancer operations, who will be at risk. And we need to be looking at those patients and saying, if they're there, if they're at risk, can we do them? And the things that will stop us doing that is the patients themselves may be in a place that their comorbid state makes them at too great a risk versus the risk of what the procedure is. Yeah. And we need to be looking at that. Or the patient's risk is much higher than then their comorbid state, you've got to discuss those risks with the patient and try and balance them. But we can provide transport to bring them up safely. We can provide a process, and we now know, having done lots of these cancer operations, that we can counsel them, screen them, uh, uh, keep them isolated for two weeks, test them, bring them in, and with our staff in full PP, not expose them to further risk. So we can get those patients in to have operations safely. And we also know that our staff have been protected by doing that. So I think we can get that work through. Yeah. You don't want to be in a place where uh, you're burning through PPE unnecessarily. So you've got to have a place where you're measuring and, and checking that uh, PPE, masks, gowns, etc., are appropriately available for the people who absolutely need them, the people still looking after COVID on the units, that we've got some reserves there. But those processes are in place. We now have very good procurement people with an idea on the rate of use of these things. We don't want to be in a place where we're exposing patients to uh, a high risk of a complicated general anesthesia for a low-gain procedure. But again, we've been, we're in the job of, of that kind of risk assessment. What worries me is that we might put too many hurdles in the way and you have patients out there who have things that need to be done that we're turning a blind eye to. Um, I'm particularly worried in things like a bowel cancer, with people who've got known positive fecal occult blood testing and a bowel cancer thing that's growing. Yes, if you wait one, two, three months, that's fine, but this could go on for a long time and that bowel cancer could be spreading. And they'll be exactly the same in many areas. I'm not an orthopedic expert, but I could imagine there'll be people with uh, 
you know, at-risk infected joints or um, bones that need procedures done, that you can wait for a while. But if you wait longer, you will start to get into real difficulty. And I believe that guidance should be there to protect those patients and actually be allowed to bring them in, but to protect the other patients who we shouldn't be bringing and always protect the staff. Yeah. And I think we can get there, and I think we've got good evidence now with our cancer work. And it's not just UCLH, the Morrison and Guys and Tommy, so Pan London, we've had three hubs doing this. And I think that provides, to me, the internal reassurance this is doable. That's, that's, that's really interesting, Jeff. And in terms of, it's probably not going into too much detail about it, but those patients you've been bringing in using those pathways, overall, just giving us a rough idea in terms of the numbers, are many patients coming into the hospital, obviously, COVID negative and then catching COVID, is that is that a, a become a problem or, or not? No, very, very low numbers. Um, I think the Western Street figures, uh, please don't quote me on the exact numbers, mm. but I think it's over 400 patients we've operated on at our Western Street site. And I think it's the fingers of one hand, not two, uh, who have had symptomatic or positive tests for covid uh, perioperatively okay. that doesn't mean that they got it from us they could have got it um you know the, the test might have missed it yeah the symptomatic but and untested positive but we're really looking at very very small figures and all of those were fine they got, they were not uh, needing critical care support afterwards so they had actually fortunately a very low level of problem from it so that doesn't mean there's not really difficult cases and everyone knows someone who's had a patient who had an operation uh, and they did badly from that those stories exist but what i'm telling you is that in the way we run the the planning through that and the screening and the workup of, of our patients and we're increasingly trying to add more resilience to it should we be looking at testing staff? Should we be looking at, uh, you know, what kind of, in the future, what kind of testing will we do, do for patients? Is it just PCR? Do we do antibody testing and so yeah. on? So I think this will evolve and get more and more nuanced, improved resilience to it. But yeah. overall, the answer to your question is a low risk of causing a problem to the patients. Not no risk, but yeah, a low absolutely. risk. No, that's very interesting. And that sort of brings us on. So in terms of, you know, a lot of these guidelines, you know, that and, and obviously a lot of people are realistic and, you know, and many have said, you know, once we are back to these sort of um, semi-urgent and, and planned care surgery, uh, it, it mustn't be presumed initially that we'll be able to return to pre-COVID-19 activity levels. It won't, it, it, it won't be rapid and you have to do a constant review of our capacity and abilities to maintain those sort of things and to maintain the safety, as you say, to our staff and patients. So, Looking to the, to the future over the next few months, how do you see that overall ahead? Uh, and do you have an idea of a timeline and what do you think the hurdles uh, ahead may be? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because there's a whole lot of things we still have to work out uh, and we mustn't be armchair scientists. Everyone has an opinion on COVID. And we'll have to diligently follow up uh, what the evidence builds up to show us. At the moment, we are rightly worried about aerosol generation, and we're rightly worried about how we protect um, staff, the anaesthetist intubating a patient for, a, for an operation, the ENT surgeon doing a, an airway procedure, uh, you know, is drilling bone and aerosol, you know, so all of those things, 
We need to understand that. But at the moment, we put in processes to uh, ventilate and clear the room after an intubation aerosol generating procedure. We're making sure we allow time for uh, the air to, to clear. Over time, we'll understand even, even those. We'll have a greater knowledge of the risk associated with that and the protection measures we put in. We need to be watching all of those. But because of that, we know that some procedures take significantly longer. And in some cases, we're running only at 50% of the usual uh, throughput on a list. Um, now, obviously, if you've got one case on a list and it's an all-day procedure, it'll be 100%. You'll just take longer towards the end of the day. But if you've got a fast turnover list, uh, breast surgery with lots of small biopsies or whatever, those lists will be hit. Over time, I think we will get more efficient, but I wouldn't predict for the next while we'll be back to anything like normal efficiency yeah. and nor should we be until we're truly confident on what aerosol generation means until we're truly confident on the risk to staff i think uh, staff need breaks when they're in ppe mm-hmm. you know there's a whole range of those things we've got to work through so i think we're going to accept a degree of inefficiency and we're going to work with that until we can properly eliminate it so that means that we're going to look at trying to do procedures that are rag rated or in some way, gated so that we're doing more important procedures. It means we need to look at keeping clean sites if we can, mm-hmm. hospitals and sites that are uh, away from emergency pathway work. So at the moment, it's been great with the independent sector work. We've had really good engagement, uh, both with the independent sector, with NHSE, and with the clinical leaders, we really managed to make that work. And I think that we'll be able to get a lot of good work done there. And I, I think those contracts will run through for a little while. I don't know how long. Um, and then we'll need to be looking back at base and what do we need to build in for the original base hospitals with uh, green, uh, the colours will change, but, you know, elective pathways that are ring-fenced from emergency pathways. Yeah. And is that a ring fence by floor? Is it ring fence by staffing as well? Is it ring fence by diagnostics? We can probably over engineer this very quickly. We're very good at over engineering. Yeah. But we will need to keep some of those uh, clean pathways and start to define how, when we get out of the independent sector, we've got sufficient of those uh, back at all our home bases. Yes. Yeah. And Jeff, do you think, in, in terms of all that sort of moving forward, obviously, there's this worry about a second surge as lockdown is gradually lifted. Do you think we're well positioned to deal with that as best we can? You know, it's hard to predict, you know, what it would be like, but do you think even with restarting some of these services, we'll still have that capacity there? Uh, One of the things that uh, we've been planning uh, in in micro care world, uh, NHSE been saying to us, actually, we need to double the number of critical care beds uh, in London. Um, And I think, London really took a, a big hit with, with the COVID surge, but the rest of the country, uh, you know, many parts of the rest of the country, similarly, uh, Northwest uh, and uh, Northeast have had a hit as well. So I think we need to look at increasing our critical care capacity. And I think it's, I think it's the right thing. I think that's a good thing the government is trying to do. And if we can define those beds so we can deal with a surge as it comes back, 
And their ask really is to get us to try and build those beds in such a way that we don't uh, surge back into theatres and recovery. Naively, that's very straightforward. We can convert uh, a ward into a, an HDU stroke ICU and we can say, here, we've got a second ICU. When the next surge happens, we can go up there and we don't have to go into your operating theatres. We don't go into your recovery. And we could build that ward uh, with parked oxygen in a, in a place without overdoing it, without pendants. And we could be there in three, four, five months. Obviously, the trick is that we won't have the staff. Yeah. So we might not surge into the theatres and the recovery, but we're going to steal all the anaesthetists and put them back in if the surge is big. But the surge may not be big. It mm. may be smaller. Yeah. And we might only steal half the anaesthetists. If that happens, and we've still got an operating theatre that is clean and, and able to be used, and we could, we've still got a place where we could put patients in the ward or just do day surgery yeah. we can still get through a steady lot or diagnostics we can still get through a steady lot of elective procedures nothing like a normal working day but if we take a you know in my podium here i've got uh, 14 operating theaters even if i'm running four that's better than running none and there would be on an on an average day if i'm able to get through four theatres worth of important cases, there's a lot of patients who made a real difference to. So I think I think those changes, the government changes, increase critical care capacity and take it out of theatre space is good. And over time, we should also be able to start training up our nursing skills and our clinical skills so that we might even be able to run more beds as well. At the moment, um, being quite, quite brutal, we've got... We might get the kit, but we've got people who take longer. Absolutely, absolutely. And just to sort of finish on, Jeff, you sort of mentioned it before, but from your experience of, you know, trying to do these sort of uh, urgent, semi-urgent cases that you've had so far, do you think the patient perspective has changed at all? Do you think we'll get a, um, a, a, um, a proportion of patients who just don't want to take the risk to have their surgery uh, and because of, you know, the fear of, of, of COVID? Of course. No, we've got... Uh, everyone will recognise exactly that. You can ring up some patients and say, you know, we'd like you to come up for the assess and they say, please don't contact me until COVID's over. Yeah. And we've got to respect that. Uh, now, clearly, if they've got something big and bad, we might need to come back and rediscuss and rediscuss what that looks like. Mm. Um, but there'll be, be a bunch of patients that that's appropriate. I don't... It depends how long it is until COVID's over. Yeah. Um, so we will need to have very good tracking systems and very good processes to allow patients to, to do that. Mm. Um, I think patients will change as, as we go through, you know, unlocking and, uh, uh, you know, removing aspects of lockdown, people's mindset changes as well. So I think patients will become more, we're back to normal. Mm -hmm. So some patients will start to say, well, why well, haven't I had my, this or that done? Yeah. Um, so I think we've got to be sensitive to, to the patient's wishes. We've got to push them if we really think that, that, that they are deficit in themselves. But everything is an explained, consented process. And, you know, as long as we're fair and accurate with what we explain to the patients, we can't. You know, it's, it's a free world. No, so we've got, to, we've got to accept that. And in some patients... 
who are you know, isolated and, and being protected, uh, we, we really must continue to achieve that. In a, in a cancer hub like ours, we've got a lot of neutropenic patients out there. And yeah. the last thing I want to do is see them darken our doors at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jeff, I think that's that's all we have time for. But thank you so much. That was a really excellent overview and insight today, and it's been really informative. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Good. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. And finally, as ever, we would like to thank uh, our many colleagues around the UK and across the world, in particular our colleagues in anesthesia and critical care, uh, who we've heard from today, for their tireless ongoing contributions over the past few difficult months in the delivery of care to our patients. Uh, we thank you here at the Journal. We'll continue to support you in every way we can moving forward. Stay safe and well, everyone, and thanks for listening.